host, Chris Gast, RLM's Director of Communication and Education. Our feature today is a look back at our 2012 abortion abuses report. I want to spend a lot of time on that, so let's quickly go over a few stories from the last two weeks. On July 13th, the U.S. House voted 245 to 182 for the Conscience Protection Act. Now, the Conscience Protection Act is really only necessary uh, because the Obama administration is refusing to enforce the Weldon Amendment in California because California is forcing all insurance plans to cover abortion, uh, which would seem to be a violation of the Weldon Amendment, which is annually passed by Congress. And so, since the Obama administration is refusing to do it, the Conscience Protection Act would simply give citizens an avenue to sue in the courts rather than depend on the bureaucrats in the Department of Health and Human Services to decide if a Weldon Amendment violation has happened or not. And uh, that should be an indication that personnel matters. If you have a bureaucrat who just doesn't care about what a law plainly says, uh, it doesn't matter. That bureaucrat's just going to ignore it. And hopefully uh, they would be able to find uh, any citizen experiencing a violation of the Weldon Amendment uh, would be able to find a judge uh, who could rule in their favor. Of course, President Obama is going to veto the Conscience Protection Act if the Senate passes it, but it's still important to highlight that people have conscience rights. These conscience rights are protected in law. They need to be respected. Uh, Just a brief note from the convention, Donald J. Trump has accepted the nomination as the Republican nominee for president. We'll go over uh, conventions in the primary election in more detail in two weeks, but that should definitely be noted. I also wanted to uh, bring up the fact that we have a new TV ad, and I don't want to say new in that sense because Start With Life uh, as a two-minute video We actually used it a little bit in the last election two years ago. It was a little bit longer than two minutes, but we had an opportunity to actually put it on TV as a two-minute long video um, with almost no editing um, from its original version, which I think was like two minutes and 20 seconds or something. Um, And this is a big deal because, you know, usually TV ads are 30 seconds. Uh, All of the TV ads that we've done in the past, uh, almost all of them are all 30 seconds. So this was a two-minute ad. It's gotten a lot of good feedback from people. Uh, I would encourage you to go to our YouTube page and uh, you can view it there. Um, Go to our website for a link to that. We'll have it on our Facebook page uh, next week. All right, let's dive straight into that abortion abuses report. This was done in the run-up to passing our Pro-Life Omnibus Act, which uh, reformed how our abortion clinics were regulated in Michigan. It was really important to provide a track record to people of why the law needed to be changed is because uh, the laws on the books that we had were just not getting the job done. First item in the report I want to mention, Pro-Lifers in Lansing found the remains of 47 aborted babies in the business dumpster outside a Lansing building housing two abortion clinics. 
Now, I left a little part of that out. That might sound familiar because that's what happened a couple years ago and led to the closure of two abortion clinics. But uh, the one I just read was actually from 1989. And instead of uh, Chris Venaclas of 40 Days for Life finding in a dumpster uh, the bodies of aborted babies, it was a pro-life group called Rescue Lansing. And just, you know, the dumping of aborted babies, kind of one of the more favorite points I've heard about, it's from Monica Miller, who does um, sidewalk counseling and is responsible for many of the pictures of aborted babies you've seen because of all the aborted babies that have been left in dumpsters that she and others have uh, found and photographed. Uh, Dr. Miller's made the point that um, one of the core evils of abortion is that we're ignoring the unborn, we're completely cutting them off from society. Even after the abortion, you know, the violence of the procedure has taken place, they aren't even then given the dignity of being thought of as part of the human race. They aren't given a burial, they aren't given a funeral, um, they aren't even incinerated. Um, they're just left in a, in a box somewhere, often to be shipped to a research facility, uh, just to be used. This alienation of the unborn this utter loneliness is a really profound point to me. Um, but I, I bring this up not just because I think it's a profound point, but because Dr. Miller is going to figure into this story directly. The long story uh, short of 1989 uh, dumping of aborted babies was that the Attorney General at the time, Frank Kelly, just declined to sue, and there were no fines. The two clinics got away scot-free. Um, the different case, a few years ago, um, we had Attorney General Bill Schuette, who prosecuted that case properly, and uh, those clinics are no longer open. So once again, personnel matters. One of the owners of those clinics was Alberto Hidari, and I really want to use him as the focus for this report because he shows up throughout it, uh, just like several other abortionists. But let's just follow uh, Alberto Hadari through the report. Um, and you can get a really good picture of what the abortion industry is like in Michigan. For Hadari, you know, got away scot-free there, no fines, no penalties. Um, and uh, he did it again in 2008, uh, dumping aborted babies. And once again, um, no fines, no penalties. But guess who did get a fine out of that, though? Uh, Dr. Monica Miller. Dr. Miller was the one who found the aborted babies in that case. Um, she found the evidence. She reported the crime. And she got a bill, I think it was for just over $1,000 for finding the evidence. So there you go. No good deed goes unpunished. Continuing to follow uh, Hadari, in 2003, um, and I want to read this directly from the report, uh, in 2003, patient Regina Johnson died of cardiac arrest following administration of general anesthesia for a first trimester abortion at Woman Care of Southfield. That's one of Hadari's clinics. An expert review of the Bureau of Health Professionals' investigation of the deaths deemed recovery room conditions at Woman Care, quote, woefully inadequate and substandard. The Attorney General filed a suit against Milton Nathanson, who performed the abortion, and Alberto Hadari, the clinic owner as well as the nurse anesthesiast Barry Thompson. The complaint alleged that all the following led to Regina Johnson's death. 1. The patient recovery room was not equipped with oxygen or resuscitation equipment. 
Two, the patient recovery room was not equipped with standard monitoring equipment such as a pulse oximeter. Three, only one nurse was monitoring five to six patients with no other clinic staff available when standard of care is one nurse for two patients. Four, emergency medical services was not contacted until 20 minutes after the nurse detected no pulse. Nearly six years later, in March 2009, the Board of Medicine found Hadari, Nathanson, and Thompson to be negligent in Regina Johnson's death. So there we see um, this clinic was woefully unprepared to handle an emergency medical situation. And the Board of Medicine found that Hodari, the owner, and his staff were negligent. But his clinic stayed open after that. And what really bugs me, obviously the death of this woman bugs me, but as we've talked about in a few recent podcasts, um, these statistics about uh, complications following abortions aren't tracked properly. Um, aren't tracked properly. I'm looking at the report on 2003 from the Michigan Department of Community Health and the abortion statistics. Number of abortion complications in 2003, death, zero. Regina Johnson was not even given the dignity of being counted as a statistic in 2003. And these uh, numbers from the Michigan Department of Community Health are sent and uh, they're tracked by the Centers for Disease Control which compiles statistics on abortion deaths. And these uh, statistics from the CDC are cited in court cases. For example, um, the recent Supreme Court case on abortion clinic regulations. These aren't accurate statistics. Women's deaths aren't being reported. Well, let's move on uh, for more Hadari. Um, One thing that abortion clinics have often been caught doing is leaving powerful narcotics lying around. Um, If you remember, Kermit Gosnell only got caught uh, for his many, many murders that he'd performed on Born Alive Babies uh, because he was also running a pill mill. And the Drug Enforcement Agency caught wind of that. Uh, For years, people knew that his clinic was filthy and dangerous, and plenty of people must have known what he was doing with these Born Alive Babies. Um, But he didn't get caught because of that. He didn't get inspected um, properly by state officials. He only got caught because he was running a pill mill. Um, well, as far as leaving drugs just lying around, uh, once again, Woman Care of Southfield, owned by Alberto Hadari. The violations there were particularly egregious, the report says. I'll read from the report again. During the October 2009 investigation of Woman Care, staff found no physician's order for a medication had been sent home to the patient and no physician's signature verifying several medication orders. They also found two unlocked hallway cupboards with multiple medications and an unsecured refrigerator with medications in patient areas where patients are left unattended. Open unsecured medications including ketamine, an addictive controlled substance often sold illegally as a club drug and used as a date rape drug. Narcotics logs were insufficient or non-existent. BHS further learned that the facility had no policy for medication storage or for verifying which staff is licensed and qualified to administer medications. BHS cited the facility and accepted a plan submitted by a woman care to correct this non-compliance. BHS never returned the facility to verify compliance and does not appear to have referred the physicians overseeing the staff for disciplinary action by the Board of Medicine. They were leaving drugs out that could be used as date rate drugs. 
and uh, with patience unattended. They could just walk by and grab it. And no violation was uh, sent to the Board of Medicine to follow up. Women Care just had to send something in writing saying, we'll fix it, and that was that. Let's move on to clinic sanitation. Um, sinks, scrub sinks, are one of the things that the abortion industry is objected to with these abortion clinic regulations requiring uh, abortion clinics to have scrub sinks. Why would an abortion clinic need a scrub sink? Well, they're performing surgery. Here's another section of the report from Alberto Hodari. Quote, it was observed that the physician owner washed his hands in the dirty utility room over the dirty instrument sitting in the sink. He proceeded to turn off the faucet, opened up the bottom of a cupboard. He reached down under the counter and then grabbed the towel, the top towel from the stack of unfolded hand towels. He dried his hands in the dirty utility room, placed the used towel on the counter, and then proceeded to open the door to the operative treatment room. So he didn't really properly wash his hands. I mean, basically, he just washed his hands in the bathroom and then went to go perform surgery. Uh, Forced abortions, another part of the report that has been documented. Here we go again from the report. Quote, in the 2008 incident, referring to Alberto Hodari again, the patient alleged that she received no local anesthesia and therefore tried to stop the procedure due to her extreme pain. Doctor notes from Troy Beaumont, where she was hospitalized for three days following the abortion, read as follows. Quote, patient states screamed and thrashed, even tried to wiggle up bed, severe pain, State's physician pulled her back down by her thighs and his female assistant put her hand over my mouth. In the 2009 incident, a patient alleges that Alberto Hodari performed the procedure even though she told him repeatedly to stop, even screaming for him to stop. Similar to the 2008 incident, the doctor ordered an assistant to hold the patient down and cover her mouth. This patient filed a lawsuit in addition to her Bureau of Health Professions allegation. The lawsuit settled out of court. Now, Hodur, excuse me, Hodari isn't some sort of outcast in the abortion industry. Uh, a few years ago, Wayne State University Medical Students for Choice invited him to give a lecture to the prospective medical students who might be joining the abortion industry. You know, this is the abortion industry. Now I just want to focus on um, one more doctor, uh, abortionist Robert Alexander. If you remember, he was the one whose uh, Muskegon clinic was closed in 2012. There was a reported break-in, and it was the police and the fire marshal who had to shut down his filthy clinic, not state health officials. Uh, of course, his clinic wasn't inspected for years, and uh, for a couple of years at the end, he wasn't even reporting the fact that he was doing abortions. So I want to read uh, from the report. Uh, this will be the last part, but it's going to be a little long. Um, just his history and how officials in a place to do something just refused. So this is from the report. Robert Alexander received his MD license in December 1981 and immediately began working at Kai Medical Clinic on Seven Mile in Detroit, which advertised as a weight loss clinic. There he was paid to prescribe Valium, Percocet, Pregilin, and Desoxin, not quite sure how that's pronounced, but that's methamphetamine, to patients he never saw. 
1988, a jury trial convicted Alexander of 11 counts of legal distribution of controlled substances. Alexander served almost two years in a North Dakota prison and was on parole from 1990 to 1996. Well, he sounds like a bad guy, right? Well... Of course, he's still in the story. In December 1988, the AG filed an administrative complaint against Alexander to revoke his license. And it was. You know, his license was revoked. He was in jail for two years. Of course, that's not the end of the story when it comes to the abortion industry. Medical professionals with revoked licenses, back to the report, can reapply in three years. Alexander reapplied in '93. In 95, the board denied reinstatement after a psychiatric evaluation ordered by the board. This evaluation confirmed Alexander's lifelong bipolar disorder. In their denial, the board stated, quote, To this day, Petitioner refuses to answer questions concerning his misconduct. Petitioner has failed to submit proof that he learned from this experience, unquote. So we have an unrepentant drug dealer with a revoked license. It's not the end of the story. Alexander then requested and was granted a reconsideration hearing. For the reconsideration hearing, Alexander submitted as his first exhibit a letter from Dr. George Shade vouching for Alexander. Dr. Shade was a practicing OBGYN at Detroit Riverview Hospital and a clinical professor at Wayne State at the time. At the reconsideration hearing, Alexander testified that Dr. Shade would take Alexander under his wing. If the board were to grant a limited license, Dr. Shade would act as the required supervisor for, supervisor for Alexander doing, during a mandatory retraining period. Alexander would work under Dr. Shade at Riverview Hospital and if granted a full license, Shade would help him become a full-fledged employee of the hospital. The board granted Alexander a limited license, what were they thinking, following this hearing. Dr. Shade served as Alexander's supervisor during the retraining period. In 97, Alexander petitioned for his license to be reclassified from limited to full. The board first denied the license because Alexander failed his medical exam for, re- for recertification. Alexander retook the recertification exam and passed. And in 1998, the board granted him a full MD license. In 1999, they reissued the $50,000 fine, which Alexander had never paid. That fine was then reduced to $25,000 in 2000. So we have an unrepentant drug dealer, felon, who refused to pay his fine. He's still got to be an MD. Of course, back to the report, it doesn't appear that Alexander ever became an employee of Detroit Riverview but Dr. Shade assisted him professionally in other ways. Alexander became a member of the Wayne County Medical Society in 2009, the year that Dr. Shade was installed as president of the society. Oh, what a coincidence. Alexander was also a 2011 Wayne County delegate to the Michigan State Medical Society, even though his only known medical practice is his abortion clinic in Muskegon. Dr. Shade serves as a district director for Wayne County with the Michigan State Medical Society. So not only is the unrepentant drug dealer felon who can't pay his fines a a member in good standing of a medical society, he's a delegate to the Michigan State Medical... He was a delegate to the Michigan State Medical Society. Back to the report. Dr. Shade was appointed to the Board of Medicine by Governor Granholm in 2004. He served as a member of the Disciplinary Subcommittee for several years. 
There's where your red flag should start to go off here. Became vice chair in 2009 and chairman in 2010. The Bureau of Health Professions received an allegation against Alexander in May 2006 and another in June 2009. Dr. Shade, a member of the Investigations and Allegations Committee at the time, reviewed both and did not authorize investigation for either allegation. The 2006 allegation contained seven affidavits compiled by a pro-life advocate alleging that Alexander was violating medical waste laws, our informed consent laws, and operating his Ypsilanti abortion clinic without a license. The affidavits also alleged that the clinic was dirty and unsanitary with substandard conditions, and Alexander was willing to do abortions beyond the point of viability, under circumstances that the the affidavit considered legally um, questionable. Now, abortions in Michigan after 24 weeks are technically legal, contrary to some claims you might find out there. Um, What you have to do is, you know, you have to document the age, and then there has to be a maternal health reason for the abortion provided. Now, we, of course, know that the health health reason can be defined as anything, thanks to the Supreme Court uh, for their decision in Doe v. Bolton, decided the same day as Roe v. Wade. Uh, To continue, back to the report. One affidavit alleges that Alexander appeared to be intoxicated while working at the abortion clinic. The allegations included six photos of Alexander's previous abortion clinic in Ann Arbor shortly after he'd been evicted from the building. Photos show used syringes on the floor, open containers that held blood and other medical waste, and blood splattered on the floor and walls. Dr. Shea did not authorize an investigation, and he wrote as his explanation, quote, Abortion is legal in the state of Michigan. Whether or not any given individuals agree with this is a personal matter between that person and his or her conscience. It does not change the law as it stands. There is no violation of the state health code. This file reflects an active campaign to discredit and prevent a physician from practicing because he chose to follow his own conscience and the law and perform medical abortions. Unquote. Well, gee, that sounds like he's a hero, doesn't it? Back to the report. Dr. Shade then reviewed and did not authorize investigation of a second allegation made against Alexander in June 2009. It was filed by an unidentified OBGYN who was providing medical care for a woman who went to Alexander seeking abortion. The woman paid Alexander for the abortion. Alexander did an ultrasound, then, quote, stuck something up inside her and moved it around, removing something, unquote. She left the clinic. Four and a half weeks later, she went to the hospital emergency room for pain and movement in her abdomen, and ER staff found that she was still pregnant at 30 weeks along. The allegation states, quote, It is my opinion that Dr. Alexander was grossly negligent in this case. At the time of the elective termination, the patient would have been approximately 26 weeks pregnant. No matter how obese the patient was, he should have visualized a viable intrauterine pregnancy. If he would have ruptured the membranes, he could have killed the fetus or been responsible for delivering a premature neonate. If he had placed the suction curette through the placenta, the patient would have bled to death. More than 10 months after receiving the allegation, Dr. Shea did not authorize an investigation. His reason for authorizing the investigation is as follows. Quote, Appropriate evaluation of the patient was performed. She was outside the legal limit for voluntary termination of pregnancy and was informed of such by the licensee. Patient was refunded payment, no breach of standard of care, no fraud, no unethical practice. Unquote. Nothing to see here. You know, Alexander was protected from on high. 
everyone knew. Doctors knew that he was running a filthy, dangerous abortion clinic. Dr. Shade knew. Sidewalk counselors knew. The patients knew. His staff knew. Almost nobody cared. For all the rhetoric you hear about empowering women, nobody cared. Not even Dr. Shade, charged with the responsibility of ensuring that physicians in the state of Michigan are following the law and practicing safely. That's the reality that we're going to go back to if Planned Parenthood challenges our abortion clinic regulations and finds a judge, they just need one, one of many, who just doesn't care. Because that judge will just do the bidding of the abortion industry. Why? Well, I mean, you can decide what their motivations might be. You can take some guesses. But uh, just dealing with the facts, um, the facts are that the abortion industry is dangerous when left to regulate itself. Even when there are laws in places, pro-abortion personnel charged with upholding them will frequently look the other way. So we can't let them ignore it. We have to hold them accountable. I know I've went uh, pretty long here, but I really wanted to get into everything in uh, that report. Um, and that's just just a, a snapshot of the stuff in the report. It's much longer. I really encourage you uh, go on our website, read it. And that's all that we have uh, for this edition of Life Beat. Uh, please join us for our next episode where we'll be talking about the conventions and the August 2 primary election. Don't forget to vote. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.